Mark 14, 32 through 42, Jesus prays in Gethsemane. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, there he fell on the ground and prayed, If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came, uh, and when he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, way folks. Uh, the only way I know the date is because my phone tells me what the date and the week of, or the day of the week it is. Uh, all the days are blending together. We're hoping for reopening. We are in that weird, strange holding pattern, waiting to find out. This morning we're in Mark 14, and it's uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm glad I'm glad we landed here, because I think the Garden of Gethsemane is especially helpful to Angelinos. Uh, that's you. That's me. And, and okay, so so why would that be? So Angelinos, and you know this, all the, all the writers, and I'm not even talking about uh, Christians, but cultural writers, in their observation of Angelinos, uh, notice that we are all about nice things, and, and not just once in a while special occasion nice things, but we want nice things all the time. So positive things, uh, bright things, new things, happy things, uh, bodies shaped by hot yoga and weights, fresh from the market meals, laughter, beautiful things, new stories, new gadgets, new experiences. And again, not as a special occasion, but on the daily. And Angelinos have this persistent dream for life that it will always get better the next day. Like, never worse. All, always better. Uh, worse is for all the people who didn't do the program correctly and have to retreat. So, Wallace Stegner, years ago, uh, he, he was a Pulitzer Prize winner, ended up in New York uh, City, but he would always have these uh, ruminations about California. And famously, he said, you know, California is like the rest of the America, but only more so. Um, this is 
what he meant. And I'm going to quote Kevin Starr, a USC professor, uh, taught for years there, and then was the librarian emeritus for the state of California. And he said this, California is a prism through which the larger American identity, for better or worse, can be imagined. That's Kevin Starr. Now, I, I'm pr most people, when they conceive of California, and I think rightly, uh, probably conceive it as the L.A. Basin and the Bay Area. Uh, it is Those areas are an amplification of the dreams and the aspirations that you find elsewhere. It is America, but on steroids. And, and so Angelinos need the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, because we really don't have a healthy category for suffering. We don't. Uh, we have Jesus, the, our, our supposed hero, the beginner of a religion, the leader of Christianity, the Son of God, and we see Jesus uh, stunned and astonished and emotionally wobbling and faltering in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I, I think there are just three things I want to just touch on. It's not complete or exhaustive, but there are three things I want to touch on when we look at the Garden Gethsemane for Angelinos. And, and the first one is this, is um, it, it's going to help an Angelino embrace the wrath of God, not be embarrassed by the wrath of God, like what we all are if we're mumbling around with our friends and neighbors. So embrace the truth of God's wrath. That's the first one. The second way is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, gives us a new way to go through suffering and pain. Uh, that's going to be good for an angel, especially when we do inevitably run into pain and suffering. And, and, the, and then the third thing is attached to the second. It's how, how can you find that power? Like how can you find that strength for yourself to go through pain and suffering? So let's jump into that first one. Um, how does the Garden of Gethsemane show us um, that we can embrace the truth of God's wrath? So in the Garden, uh, we see Jesus struggling with his upcoming death. Now this is very interesting in recorded history. For a leader or an icon or this big figure to be so wobbly here. So especially if you look at the ancient Greeks and you look at them and how they uh, handled upcoming death, what they, uh, if you were about to face death, um, the Greeks really prized a coolness putting on a brave face, maybe even being philosophical or dispassionate or, or humorously ironic, kind of showing a, a strong stoicism. Almost like the phrase like, I suppose it's my time to go. The Greeks valued someone who seemed to be in control of their faculties. So when uh, Socrates commits suicide, it's almost like government-forced suicide by drinking the hemlock, uh, there's, there's this passage describing the event, and it says his attendants were crying, and Socrates is cool, and he comforts them. He comforts those that are crying. And then 
uh, he says, this is one of the, actually one of his final words or phrases. He says this to uh, his personal attendant. He says, uh, we owe a chicken to Asclepius. Do pay it. Don't forget, okay? That's his last. What a cool cat, right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to comfort others who are crying. I'm going to be so, I'm going to be so brave that I remember that we owe our neighbor a chicken. Now, uh, what, what, what bravery? And then, but I do think we have in our popular conception of the Greeks, like in the movie 300, right? Um, they yell, for Sparta! And they rush into death with honor, honor and bravery. Uh, uh, I, I think that is more of uh, a Jewish or Hebrew quality um, that says, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead like full gusto. Uh, we have these uh, accounts in the Jewish writer Maccabees uh, um, of, of Jewish heroes and, and, and figures and, and who have legendary status. And what they do is uh, they ride straight into the swords, straight into the spears and the pikes and the arrows, right? They run headlong into death in front of them. Uh, so, so Jesus in the garden is maybe even off-putting to the ancients. But I think this will surprise you too a little bit, is Jesus is different, and he's set apart from all the accounts of Christian martyrs throughout history. So at the end of college, I was I was coming back to the faith, and I read a book. It's an old book, and I think a lot of it is melodramatic and possibly exaggerated, but it's called Fox's Books of martyrs. It's an old book. And there are accounts of all of these Christians who would not recount or uh, 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 give up their Christianity instead choosing to die. So there's an account of Blandina, uh, early third, fourth century, um, um, a woman um, who has just given birth. She will not recant or give up Christianity. And she's in her prison and her father is pleading with her to ren- uh, to renounce Jesus so that she can care for her baby and her family and she wouldn't die, but she's fixed and she's stubborn and they put her in the arena and she's she, they basically put her in a bag of sorts and she's torn apart by wild animals. Uh, a bravery. We see just a bravery and a fixedness and a stubbornness with Blandina. There's another account of 40 Roman soldiers at Sebast. And uh, they are converts to Christianity. They will not renounce Jesus or give up their Christianity. And so uh, their leader basically strips them of their clothing, puts them out in the cold at night, and they stand in the cold singing to their death, the 40 soldiers of Sebast. You have Polycarp, early church leader, uh, and, and he's about to be burned at the stake. And uh, basically, he says, you know, the fire that you're talking to me lasts but an hour, but the judgments of God will last forever. So why delay? Do what you will. That's a, that's a savage line. Like, that is bold. Polycarp is bold. So, 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 so hopefully when we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
maybe he will say something to out-savage Polycarp. Like maybe Jesus will say, bring it, Father. Bring the nails. Bring the spear. Flog me. Rip up my flesh. Do your worst. Jerusalem! Like maybe he's going to say something. We have this, like, you've got to, you've got to dwell over this question. Why have all of Jesus' followers met death and died better than Jesus? Because in the garden, Jesus is struggling and he's sweating and he's wobbling, emotionally wobbling, and it's not bold and it's not cool collectedness like we don't see that from Jesus why why is that okay so uh, I taught logic for years uh, number one logic kind of demands this is that Jesus must have been seeing something or experiencing something uh, that went beyond the 40 soldiers of Sebast beyond Blandina, beyond Polycarp, but beyond all those other martyrs, he had it had to be something beyond physical pain. It had to be. Uh, the second thing is he began to he began to experience this in the garden. It says it says there in verse thirty three. You can see it for yourself, Mark fourteen. He began like his experience of this horror began in the garden and and he's stunned the, the text says he was astonished that's the word the text used he's experiencing shock this is divinity here this is god's son he's getting this a preview of what's going to happen and and so so he knows all right yeah i know i'm going to die like it says that throughout the gospels but this is the this is the first place where he's beginning to actually experience the part beyond the physical pain. Right? It's one thing to know in your head Joshua tree is hot during the summer. But it's another thing what to actually be out there baking in the relentless sun. It's a completely different experience. And this is what it's saying is he's be, he's beginning to experience something. So we have to ask ourselves something. What is it that Jesus is experiencing that his other followers and Christian martyrs throughout, what is it that he's experiencing? And Jesus says something interesting in Mark 14. He says, let this cup pass from me. Like, I don't want to drink the cup. I don't. So what is that? And in the Bible, there is... That phrase, drink the cup, is a consistent phrase, idiom, and metaphor for the wrath of God. Like it's the wrath of God on anything that's not pure or not good. And yes, human evil, but just anything that is against or contrary to who he is. That's, that's drinking the cup. The wrath of God against anything that's bad. Um, in the past couple of weeks, we've been calling it divine justice. So, so the wrath of God would be divine justice on anything that's injustice. Let me give you a sample from Scripture. Uh, and, uh, the prophet Isaiah says this in chapter 54. 
uh, and he uses this phrase and uses this picture. He says, uh, it, it's, it's talking about Israel, and he says, You're, you will drink the cup of his wrath, and you will wobble and falter. Ezekiel 23 says it this way. Uh, again, another uh, prophecy. You will drink a cup of wrath. You'll drink it, you'll drain it dry, and it will be full of ruin and desolation, and so much so that you will tear at your chest. Like it'll be that bad. It'll, that cup of wrath will be so bad that you'd rather tear your chest than experience the wrath. So this is what Jesus is touching. This is, he's on the borders of the wrath of God. Why are you mad at me? Why are you mad at me? See, it wasn't just physical suffering. That's why Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ just, it goes up to a point, but it really can't describe everything. It makes a huge ordeal of showing the physical torment of Jesus. But it cannot possibly go beyond and show what? The wrath of God apart from the physical pain. So here Jesus is, is in the garden. He comes to the Father for some sort of peace, some sort of communication and solace, and he gets hell. All throughout the Gospels, all throughout the Gospels, he has this amazing relationship with the Father. Like he leaves he leaves crowds and he gets away and he finds a quiet place and he and his Father just enjoy each other. And because of that, like he can do anything. It's enjoy, it's restful, it's confidence, it's power. I can go, I can go out, I will do anything because my father and me are good. So he goes away to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's not that. All he's shown is the father's wrath. Uh, and, and now do you get the, do you get why, he, like he's astonished. Like he, he's, he's going to look for, to, he's going to the source of like every good thing that he enjoys. And then he's staring into this window of just full-on cup of wrath. All right, um, uh, God, God's person and character, who he is, it, it's all vitality. And, it, and it's brilliant, beautiful light, lightness. It's deep and careful love. We know this. And so sin, the anti-God is none of those things. It's not vitality, and it's not light, and it's not love. Okay? So so sin is this act or thought, movement, proclivity towards uh, death and darkness and hate. Okay? So because of that, if this is the character of God, light, love, and uh, vitality in life, then putting darkness and hate and death uh, near that, it, it just doesn't make sense, right? So, so, so it has to be, those things have to be separated from each other. So this is what Jesus is experiencing, is he is experiencing spiritual apartness and separation. And this is where Jesus wobbles and he falters. Uh, this this is this is just a sampling, a window, a peek, a preview of what he's going to have to go through. So, uh, this is where an Angelino needs this, because someone could say, 
especially friends, neighbors, they could say this, okay, I, I really don't like the wrath, the furious, angry God business. I'm just really into a loving God right now. A, a, a couple things. Um, if you want a loving God, you already know this, but he has to get angry. So the absence of anger is the absence of love. And, and you already know this in your personal relationships, right? The, the, the more deeply you care and love for a person, the more angry you get when they are being destroyed, hurt, touched, or they lash out, or they're doing destructive things. Like, the more anger comes out, the more you actually care for them. Uh, so you already know that. The second thing is, I would say this, if, if you don't think... If you don't think God uh, has the capacity or the right to get angry, then you will never know how much you're worth. So a God without anger doesn't require a crucifixion. A, a God without anger doesn't need to do anything for you. Right? He pays nothing in order to love you. It's words alone. It's like a love song. I would walk 500 miles for you. I would go to the moon for you, baby. I would never lie to you. I have that, like, I will do all these things for you. But, like, I, do, I have to say that I'll do all those things for you, but I never have to do them. It's only words. How will you know you're loved? How, how, how? How will you know your love? Now, I think Angelino's answer that question will give me everything I want and then I know you love me. No, 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 no. Um, you will never know how much you're worth until you see God angry at his own son because he loved you enough to save you from that wrath. All right. Jesus gives us, especially Angelino's, um, the second part I want to say is, is he gives us a new way to go through suffering. Uh, okay. Los Angeles resident. There's usually a space, right, between what you want in life and then the reality of your life. There, there's, a, there's a space there, okay? And the closer you are, what you want and what reality is... Uh, it goes to say that you have less pain. Now, the further those things are apart, what you want and what reality is, the more pain and suffering and trial you experience. So most of us in the LA basin, most of us in California, if not all, are here because of a dream and a desire and a want. And it could be like um, your career has the best options here. Um, this idea of a family, of a whole package or a lifestyle of house and car and place. It can be um, a find, you think finding your mate uh, comes from the largest amount of pool of people. Uh, and so you have this dream. You're here for this dream of possibility. And, and if, 
And if you're not here for a dream, you would just go somewhere else. You'd go to Northern California, uh, or you would go to New York City, or you'd go to D.C. or Cabo. But 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 you're here because you think, oh, I can close the gap from what I want to reality. So, what do you do then when what I want is very far apart from reality. What do you do? So so that's another way of saying this is what do you do when the pain hits? So the first possible solution that most people employ when they run into pain is this. I'm going to get out of town. I'm going to change the scenery. I'm going to change the reality. I'm going to go where I think my wants will intersect with reality. Now, the ancient Greeks and philosophers, I, I'm sorry about this, but they would laugh at you. They, they would look at that and say, oh, um, you don't have any integrity. <laughs> oh, uh, you can't keep your promises. Uh, you're an idiot. That's what the ancient Greeks would say. You have no integrity. Um, it, it's like um, men who discard their wives to go find a newer model. They change the scenery. And the Greeks would say, oh, you don't have integrity. So that is one way to respond or react to pain. Change the scenery, but then don't fulfill your promises. There, there's a second possible solution. And it's this, is okay. I'm going to contain and tap down and compress all of my wants. All of my desires, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to bury them and control them fiercely. And so what what I'm going to do is I'm going to become detached and I'm going to be cool and I'm going to suppress a desire. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to foster an emotionless existence. As much as I possibly can, I am going to encourage emotionless interaction with the world. So C.S. Lewis has this section on hope in his book. Very classic book, just beautiful book, Mere Christianity. And he says this, the fool's way to is what? Is to change their circumstance in response to pain. I'm going to get out of town. The cynic's way is I used to have these desires for, for adventure and love and beauty and, 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 but, but not anymore. But now I, I've pushed that down and I hope less. And I, I'm hardening myself and I've become meaner and smaller and I express less emotion and less love of big and beautiful things. I, I've, I've trained myself to have smaller wants. People, I, I've run into people who have manicured and trained their emotions to be tiny, almost non-existent. And, and, and there's a beautiful test is you can show them something that is amazing, beautiful, complex, wonderful. And, and their response is... Meh. Hmm. Even for something good. Meh. 
It was okay. They've suppressed want. They've suppressed desire. And Lewis says, no, we don't. We have a problem of not having a big enough desire. So this is what we see with Jesus, is he's actually not compressing and concealing and controlling his emotions to make them tiny. No, no, no. We see Jesus actually with great emotion say, uh, um, would you let this cup pass? Like it shows this beautiful big desire. My want, my want, my want. And then at the very same time, simultaneous to my want that is emotion expressing, you get this total, utter, complete, thorough submission at the same time to say, I want what you want, Father. These are my desires, and I want what you want. This is the other way. So you take your desires, and you take your wants, and, and your emotions, and you put them in your Father's hand. Right? If, if the reality of your life doesn't match what you want in life, then what, you, what we say is, like, I know I have to trust you in this. See, Jesus loves into the pain. And he obeys. He obeys what? For the love of the Father. And he turns all of that suffering and pain into something that is gracious. Uh, uh, it's totally about your will. Uh, your will. Uh, 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 your wants be done. I want and your wants be done. I want and your wants be done. My will, but but your will be done. This is my will, your will be done. And it will do something that we can't imagine. That's another way through suffering. The third thing I want to touch on is this, is how, how do we get that kind of strength for ourselves? Um, okay, Angelino, you dream catcher, you. How do we get this kind of power and strength? Why does God the Father give Jesus the preview of the horror? Why does he do that? It's not really that safe to do. Because there's this possibility that Jesus might not want to go through it. Um... Couldn't God the Father have just waited until Jesus was tacked on the cross and then he couldn't squirm out of the deal? Isn't it kind of precarious to the plan to show your key participant what's really going to go down? Why is this such a gutsy move? Because Jesus could walk away. Uh, so the Father gives him this experiential preview to see exactly where he is going. That way, Jesus could freely decide to go into it, knowing exactly what it was going to be. And it wouldn't be coercion. It would be this free, fierce, loving choice. His love would be better because of that. Uh, the Puritans described it this way. Looking at Gethsemane, um, his obedience to God was even more perfect. Not that something can be more than perfect, it's just more brilliant, right? Even brighter. Uh, Adam, 
you remember back, Adam rolls into a garden, Eden, right? He rolls into a garden, and God's like, uh, hey, uh, follow my rules about that tree thing, and just obey me there, and you're good, you live. Spoiler, Adam didn't do it, and we don't do it. There's not a person who lives who does it. And we have this curse and all the consequences of it on us and then all over humanity. We just see it daily in the news cycle. Now, the second Adam, the scriptures call Christ the second Adam. He rolls into a garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And God the Father essentially says, hey, I'd like you to follow what I want about that tree. It's more of a timbered tree. Just obey me there, thanks. Now, this morning, like we have to see how much harder that tree is. The Garden of Gethsemane is way tougher than the Garden of Eden. To Adam, it's like, obey me about the tree, and then you get blessing, life, and fullness. And Adam still, <laughs> Adam still can't do it. And we can't still do it, right? And to Jesus, he's like, obey me about the tree, and I will press and grind you down and make you wobble and falter and feel the full force of my curse and my anger and my abandonment. And then he did do it. Why? Why, 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 why? 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 Uh, we just can't escape this. Uh, because he loved us. Right? That is the extent and the equality and the amount and the kind of love that he has for you today, right now. He'd rather lose himself than you or me. He'd rather lose himself than you or me. That's John 17. If you read his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, so no one, no one, no one, no one, not you, not me, not anybody, not any cynic or critiquer of, no one, no one, no one, no one can say this is a mean, uncaring, unloving God. No one. Like this silences the crazy theories of the distracted, not present, smitey God. Right, right. He, he lives this perfect life, yes. Okay, Jesus lives this perfect life. And then he does this greatest act of obedience at the end of his life. It makes it even better. It makes it even more perfect, like the Puritan said. And his father lets him see why. So he can walk away from it if he wants. Um, this is the greatest act of fulfillment of the law of God ever. Jesus is owed all of this blessing. He gets curse. We're owed all of this curse. We get blessing. Now, now, when we take that and we and we and we ingest it by faith just daily when you see that kind of intensity and that huge fierce robust full love right you know this you know that all the love you've been trying to squeeze out of um, your peers all the love you've been trying to get from mom all the love you've been trying to get from dad 
all the friend love you've been trying to get, all the professional love you've been trying to get, all the romantic love you've been trying to just get, 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 get. Look, you already know this. They've walked away from you. (laughs) They have walked away from you. And you know this. When you see the garden, like, oh, that's a love that will not walk away from me. That is a love that's going to walk with me in suffering and pain because he stared into it and he goes, yeah, I'm going to still go through with it. Um, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is uh, it's a gift but it's like this portable gift and what I mean by that it's this concrete piece of confidence pocket confidence you can carry with you wherever you go and this is what I mean by that is if Jesus didn't bail on you in the Garden of Gethsemane when he when he saw what it was going to take um uh, do you think he's going to bail on you now? Let's say, let's say right now, this morning, this is where you are. You're like, it's all focused on yourself. And you're like, I feel so defeated. I don't feel like I'm making the progress. I'm so disappointed in myself. Um, do you think this, do you think he's going to give up on all your hellacious problems when he was getting an eyeful that was much bigger than that in the garden? No. See, this is portable pocket confidence that you can carry with you and say, oh, he didn't bail on me there. He's not going to bail on me now either. Or you could say this. You could be in a different place this morning, right? You could say this. Okay. Oh, oh, Tim, Tim, you're mistaken. I'm not my problem. Other people are my problem. Okay? People are worthless and useless and people have bailed on me and all these stupid people around me are so hard to love and they're always blowing it and messing up and and, and disappointing me. Okay. <laughs> Look at Jesus' friends. Right? Jesus' friends in the garden are like, um, yeah, I'm tired. I can't be there for you. I really need eight hours of sleep. Like, I hear you, but um, let's just, out. can I talk to you tomorrow? What does Jesus say? We can read it in Mark 14. Verily, I say unto you, I am so done with you. I am canceling you as a friend. I kind of needed you and you weren't there for me. No. He he finds the kindest possible thing to say. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> He's being nice. I, I, I know you want to, but it's hard. I get it. I'm not mad. When you see him doing that, to them and to you. How can you possibly cancel other people? This is how we get that power. When we camp and marinate on on that pocket confidence stare, that stares and exults in his love as like a daily IV drip, you naturally, or supernaturally, as the case may be, start having this gratitude for him. 
But this is what's happening is you're in essence you're slowly bending your knee to that kind of superior unmatched love. It's as if you're saying, yeah, that's a, that's a better love. That's a better love. Yeah. Wow. That is a that that is the gold that is the platinum standard of love. And, and when you do that daily and weekly, and it bleeds into months and years, and you're just doing this all the time. When you stand up from that bended knee, his love will have gotten into you. And, and, and you will have been changed. And you will start loving in ways that people will find eerily sim- similar to their Savior. Uh, that's how we get the power. Exulting in it. Thinking on it. Gloating over it. Marveling over it. Daily. That's how you get the power to do it. Let's, let's pray, Angelinos, that the Garden of Gethsemane is and becomes our pocket confidence for the certain pain Let's pray. Our Father and our God, my God, you abandoned your son. You even gave him the preview. And he did not abandon us. We need this. We need a new way to go through suffering. We need bigger desires. And we need to bring those desires to you and your will. Bring us to that. Bring that to us. By your spirit we pray. Amen.